Welcome to the Austin Forum Upload, the podcast of the Austin Forum on technology and society. I'm Jay Boisseau, the executive director and founder of the Austin Forum, and I'm very pleased to be here today with Anastasia Uglova, founder of Agency and founder and co-host of the Privacy Podcast. Anastasia, thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So I'm very happy that you're here. I've gotten to know you at some Austin Forum events. <laughs> And I wanted to share you with more of our listeners who can't make it to those events. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in digital privacy and what you're doing now? Sure. Uh, my road to the digital privacy and identity space comes by way of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, okay. At the time, I was actually working, uh, living and working in East Africa, in Rwanda specifically. I was working in the ed tech and economic development space. Um, and prior to that, I was working in media and politics, so places like the Senate, um, NBC, and some think tanks. Um, so I've always been interested in sort of the intersection of ideas, policy, and technology, and how those impact society and um, overall just betterment of the human condition. But after about five or now this was probably six years in East Africa, I started thinking it was time to come home. Um, and I was thinking, what, what, what do I do in tech in America, the landscape? of frontier uh, emerging economies is very different when it comes to technology than what, what it is likely in the United States in 2016. So I was looking for a project um, and that's when the Cambridge Analytica scandal happened. And it almost felt like Providence was like, hey, you asked for a project? Hold my beer, I got one for you. Because, <laughs> yeah, because I'm a US citizen of Russian birth. So it felt to me like a very visceral call to action to get involved and to uh, protect um, what I think of as my you know, adoptive nation. Mm -hmm. So I started kind of tracking the space, um, was very surprised to, to learn that in the event, in, in, in all of the congressional hearings thereafter, um, what we found out was that there was no data breach. Um, the right. 280 million Facebook records that were accessed by an external party, that was possible because of poorly architected privacy and identity standards um, and policies, and not mm -hmm. because there was some sort of data breach. So that got me thinking about, well, you know, if if companies are the ones that are making these very consequential decisions about people's um, personal data and their consent, you know, their their ideas of what pe what they're consenting to, then we should probably get to understand how those decisions are arrived at and who has oversight over it. So that's the journey. I, I didn't realize that's what got you into this, but I'm fascinated by that. I saw the Cambridge Analytica documentary at Sundance several years ago, mm. and it just it almost terrified me to realize how much data could get passed around and what mm. you could do with seemingly irrelevant data, like answers to various quizzes, which yes. which house are you on Game of Thrones and things like mm. this. But the these deep neural networks and the massive correlations they can draw between things. And, you know, I didn't see a lot of that fake news in that election cycle because, but after seeing the documentary, I realized it's because I don't happen to be a border voter, right? I'm very clearly going to vote one way, mm -hmm. but- they really used analytics and AI to target people that were right on the fence. And they did it in some interesting ways by using that data. So I, I see why that would have gotten you into it. And by the documentary, do you mean The Social Dilemma? Yes. Right. Yeah, that was a movie um, that was produced by Tristan Harris at the Center for Humane Technology. And he's done pioneering work along with Aza Raskin 
um, who used to, uh, as I recall, lead the persuasive technologies lab at Stanford, through which a who's who of Silicon Valley founders uh, graduated studying how to build user interfaces and adversarial products that keep keep people engaged, keep, keep people's attention um, mm-hmm. on the app. In fact, um, either it was either Aza or Tristan that founded in the infinite scroll, you know, where you can just keep going and it's always going to feed you new information. So you never yeah. go away. Um, so now, interestingly, Tristan and Isa have released something called the AI dilemma, which is sort of a follow up to um, the social dilemma. But it's it's a presentation that they are, that they gave earlier this year to um, a broad swath of the uh, leaders um, and technologists that are that are dealing with AI. And so what they what they call first contact with AI is actually social media, right? Because that was all driven by through machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and so second contact with AI is this, this generative AI revolution. But first contact was that machine learning driven algorithmic model of um, tracking very closely your your like patterns, whom you're retweeting, whom you're sharing, um, with whom you're communicating. And from from those seemingly irrelevant bits of data, you can construct a very accurate um, computational psychological model of a person's right. preferences and exactly what sort of their their big five personality traits are, what their heuristic triggers are. You know, if you just right. press on that trigger, you can get them to vote a certain way or buy a certain thing or take a certain action, right? And it's we're all very, very tra- transparent when you can look at us in terms of pattern recognition instead of just, you know, in a moment. Yeah, we've already started diving into it deeply just from the mention of Cambridge <laughs> Analytica. So let me yeah. pull us back for our listeners for a second. Let's back up. And talk mm-hmm. about what is digital privacy. You just mentioned in the Cambridge Analytica thing, there wasn't actually a data breach per se, mm-hmm. but privacy doesn't necessarily equate with breach. So can you define what digital privacy is? Yeah, I think in order to define digital privacy, we must first try to understand what privacy is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hot take is that there's not one definition of what privacy is. And that's actually why it's so difficult to adjudicate and why there aren't really good governance mechanisms for it, because privacy means different things for different people in different contexts. It's highly contextual and your privacy boundaries expand and contract depending on the context. So for example, you're in a doctor's office, your privacy boundaries are lower and you have a higher willingness to share your information with mm-hmm. that doctor so that he can share information with other relevant offices. Um, but if you're in a dinner with your with your family or your parents, for example, maybe you have higher privacy boundaries because you don't <laughs> want to divulge <laughs> all of the details of your personal life, right? right. Um, so it's not, you can't really say this is exactly what privacy is. It's this, this like moving target and it's, it's highly individualized and context-based. So that's the first thing to understand. Um, in physical spaces, which is where most of the like uh, case law around privacy emanates from, um, we don't have, we don't have reality capture. There's no, to our knowledge, there's no like overall matrix that's that's able to capture all the data points about our physical interactions and store it somewhere. So um, you have a lot more agency about how you communicate, what you share, what you don't share. And when you're outside of, when you leave a certain context, the only thing that remains is someone's memory of it, right? And so if you dispute it, it's like a he, sh- he said, she said, but there's no like database of this interaction that happened unless someone like wrote it down. Now, in digital spaces, there is reality capture. Everything is a data point that goes into some sort of spreadsheet somewhere, right? That's literally what that is. Um, and we have not adapted 
our understanding of context-based privacy expectations to digital to digital spaces. And I think that's because we've had, you know, century eons of human evolution to understand how to behave in physical spaces. We more or less understand how to be human beings in what I call meat space. But in digital spaces, this is like a 50-year-old technology and it has progressed exponentially. And the curve of kind of human technology and social technology, which is like how we talk to each other, our institutions, our agreements, that curve is linear. And the technological curve is exponential. So there's always this ever-increasing delta right. between where technology is and how we can understand its new affordances, the responsibilities of confers, the um, where we need to like adapt our expectations. And so we still think of tech as this computer that's in the basement, it's a giant mainframe. Um, okay, maybe it's moved on to our desktops. Okay, well, fine, it's a laptop computer now. Okay, fine, it's in my pocket, and eventually it's on my wrist, and like it's it's maybe it's some it's a brain computer interface, uh, but we still like really think of it as this external thing outside of the body. It's not it's not real. In fact, we we say IRL to distinguish between digital and in real life, because we haven't caught on to the idea that digital is just as real and just as impactful as physical. And so if we want to start thinking about digital privacy, we have to ask really important questions about, do we have any expectation, reasonable expectation of privacy in digital spaces as we do in physical spaces? I mean, that is, um, that's an underpinning for a lot of case law about privacy. Where, where is there a zone for reasonable expectation? And where in, in public spaces is there no reasonable expectation? And therefore, you can't really say, hey, this is this is a, you know, a private fact about me. I don't want it to be divulged. But in digital spaces, we don't really have um, consensus around where is there reasonable expectation. So it's all up for grabs. So, so privacy is not really even a right, right? I guess rights are legally determined. Yeah. And we haven't, we don't really have a lot of legislation, at least in the US, around digital privacy, yeah. right? I mean, That's there's right. some for HIPAA compliance and things like that. And there's some for, you know, various levels of government, you know, top secret and classified and things like that. But that re relates to this, uh, the secrecy of those materials as an individual, other than HIPAA uh, compliance for your health data, what other privacy rights do we have? Yeah, it, privacy isn't, isn't real. It's not an enumerated right. It's not explicitly stated in the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. We call the right to privacy of penumbra because and that's a word penumbra i think is probably important to look up what it means but essentially just it's something that you arrive at because you can you you basically derive that this thing is necessary in order to enable other rights so in order to have all these other rights we therefore are like well we probably need to have a right to privacy to to enable those rights but it's not explicitly mm -hmm. stated um the first time that we really started talking about the right to privacy was in 1890 when Lewis and Brandeis wrote this uh, seminal Yale Law Review essay called The Right to Privacy. It was actually a reaction to um, technological progress. Um, one of their daughters was getting married and uh, there was a, the advent of cameras at the time was new. And so journalists snuck into the wedding and reported on it. And it felt like an intrusion on, on their seclusion, <laughs> um, which is one of the, um, the privacy torts that was um, later uh, written about by um, a scholar named William Prosser. This is 1960. So a lot of privacy law after the, pri the right to privacy, that essay, um, we kind of fast forward to 1960. Now there's these four privacy torts, one of which is intrusion and seclusion. Um, and from there, that's where kind of 
mo most of the adjudication around privacy um, stands. Um, and it it's a good question to ask whether we can rely on tort law from 1960 to adequately yeah. protect us um, in 2023 when it was not not anywhere near possible to even imagine the surface area for privacy infringement that we're currently facing. Do, do you think people in the U.S. have any idea of how little digital privacy they currently have? Or do you think in the U.S. people are well aware that they have very little digital privacy other than HIPAA records and a few other mm -hmm. corner cases? I think that people realize that there's no such thing as privacy anymore, but I don't think that they can make the distinction between the need for privacy and how how closely and causally that is linked to um, enduring institutions in an open democracy. Um, you really can't have um, in, an enduring democracy if people aren't able to register their true opinion in an election, for example, or to deliberate um, in honestly and without having to falsify their preferences, you know, because of the chilling right. effect because they're being watched. So you can't really have a real debate. You also can't have... Um, or any real sense of what what is the like the the temperature of the room like what do people really think because people are falsifying their preferences and they're not able to actually engage a topic and talk about it publicly why because the electorate gets increasingly polarized why does it get polarized because using using seemingly inconsequential data points like your like patterns it's very easy for me to use a machine machine learning model to feed you the exact information and the right priming that I need you to see at the right time when you're weakest to get you to think or vote a certain way. And this is again, 20, 2015, right? 2016, this is like almost a decade ago. We're in an election year now. I'd love for, for the listeners to imagine what's possible with the data capture currently available to companies and with the compute now available with um, orders of magnitude more AI capability. So we talked a little about the, the US uh, well, let's talk about Europe for a second. Is yeah. what is Europe doing in this area? I mean, things like GDPR and whatnot. But are, are they? What else are they doing? And are they ahead of the United States and the rest of the world in protecting digital privacy? I, th I think that it's almost the wrong question to ask because it, it presupposes that we're talking about um, regulation. I think most people think about doing the right thing is that belongs to regulation or government or something. And I disagree with that wholeheartedly, not because I don't think that there should be laws or regulations. I definitely do. But I but I believe that those come in later on after harm's already been done. It's too late. There's been some sort of congressional hearing or an EU hearing about it. Um, and it's kind of the a last resort measure. A lot more needs to be done before it gets to that point, before you're asking people who are not technologists, you know, the legislators and regulators, you're asking people who's, this is not their domain. They've got other things to do. They have other things to deliberate on. And instead of us doing the homework ourselves as technologists, we're saying, well, I don't know. Let's just see what Washington or the EU comes up with. Like that's not, that no other, no other respectable industry expects Washington or, or Europe to do their homework for them, except for software engineering. So I'd say, I don't know if the EU or the US are behind. They're both behind because neither is leading from the industry itself. It's not in neither case is industry coming together as founders, as capital, as investors, and saying, hey, you know, we know that there are some things with, with, with a high degree of accuracy that are really bad for the human condition, that are really bad for autonomy, that are really bad for decision making. 
So let's take them off the table. Let's let's have a stand or a floor, let's say, below which nobody can can go in order to um, to get product market fit faster. Like if you remove certain options from the game theoretic race that all founders are essentially in, then we reduce the number of companies that are making bad decisions, not because they actively want to harm people, but because they've got to get to PMF. Um, so, and with, with a specific example of GDPR, I think the EU looks like it's ahead because the EU did something. <laughs> There's this idea of like, somebody ought to do something. And so the EU is like, let's come up with a GDPR. What did the GDPR do actually? Well, it is a classic example of making it look like something's been done. And so it makes people more complacent because it looks like someone's taken care of the issue, someone's thought it through, someone with more expertise um, in the domain. And so they, you know, we can kind of lower our um, lower our guard. In practice, now we have these cookie pop-ups. So instead of reading an article that I want to read, I'm now presented with a menu of options that says I can either accept the cookie or, well, what if I don't want to accept these cookies? Then I have to like figure out which in the heterogeneous menus, because each menu is different from article to article or from website to website. Click reject. Well, wait, I can't click reject because that's not available to me because the product designer don't want me to click reject. So I have to go find more options and then read the options and select no. So it makes it really difficult actually to... Uh, to govern my privacy, but it looks like my privacy is taken care of. So I think it's it's much more um, a, almost like a PR exercise than having substantively made a difference in people's um, privacy boundaries in digital spaces. Oh, I, I agree with that completely, but I'm going to push back on a point you made earlier, or at least mm -hmm. how I interpreted it about regulation. Yeah. You know, we, we all know that we need agencies like the EPA to protect the environment because the Many of the player, it's, I'm not saying all companies would be bad to the environment for the sake of monetary profits and whatnot, but some would, and some is all it takes to ruin the environment and put things in the environment that can cause harm. We we know we need the, the Food and Drug Administration. People may not always agree with it, but we need the Food and Drug Administration. You want to make sure there's an FAA governing safety and air transportation, that you have a health code you know that governs the restaurant you eat in. Mm -hmm. I, I think- as challenging as it is for our legislators to keep up, I, I think if we're going to make headway here, it's going to have to be legislated because the incentives for mm -hmm. monetizing your data and creating these psychographs of people and targeting advertising, and we, we all use tons of services that advertising is paying for. So as long as we're going to use those services, they're going to try to improve the ad revenue from it. Mm -hmm. And so how do we get to a point where we, we elect and educate legislators to to understand the issues and make reasonable choices. I don't even expect them to get it right the first mm -hmm. time. Like GDPR, I applaud it for being a good first effort, whether it's perfect or not. Mm -hmm. But how are we gonna how are we gonna get to this point where we as a as a society understand it well enough, thus know whether the candidates understand it well enough. And and if, if even if they don't, it, once they're elected, they're educated well enough to mm -hmm. make good decisions here. Yeah, I think I think it's a really good place to push back on because there is some something very different about digital digital environments and physical environments. The reason that um, it's it's so easy to protect humans from harm when it comes to, for example, aerospace. Um, so building a plane, right? If you build a plane um, and you ship it too quickly <laughs> and it's not safe um, and it falls out of the sky. Um, there's going to be lawsuits, right? And and engineers will lose their jobs and um, stocks will fall, right? If I build a bridge and it falls into the bay, right? People are harmed 
and it's very easy to point to there's a there's a very clear causal link between action um you know being um negligent in your duty as a as a civil engineer or an aerospace engineer and harm or you know people being killed in digital environments that that link it takes sometimes years to establish the causality um and it's very diffuse right you concentrate benefits to the ideal customer that you're building a product for um so you've concentrated benefits and diffuse costs so you kind of have to like build um, a class action lawsuit almost to to create some sort of pressure um, in judiciary, for example. Um, and it's the same the same in legislation. Um, you have to establish that there's a real causal link and substantive harm for legislators to be able to justify it to constituents because the only re- the only way that someone's going to um, take this to Washington is if that that has something to do with their ability to get reelected. Um, so they're different. Um, I think what's I think the reason that I push back on um, on people when they're like, well, Washington's got to do something or the U.S. got to do something is that in the previous in previously mentioned industries like civil engineering, aerospace engineering, it's those industries themselves that came up with standards. It's those industries themselves that said we are going to build to these standards and we're not going to require our customers to sign an end user license agreement before they 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 take a flight on this plane or before they cross this bridge like the user the driver or the the traveler has some reasonable um, confidence that the plane has been built to spec and that the the bridge has been built to spec as well. But in in software engineering, we don't have we haven't even done, done that type of groundwork to say like this these are the structural integrity standards of an of a of a digital environment. And we've done this work and we're not going to kick the can down the road in the form of a term of service or an end user license agreement that is just a bunch of legalese that is intentionally constructed to to be unhelpful so you can't actually make a um, an informed consensual choice about your privacy options when you're looking at one of those agreements do you see what i mean yes there is what you're saying but i i I would argue that in some of those cases where industries have come together Mm -hmm. to create standards they've come together to create standards to protect the industry from uh hurting itself by having accidents by having tragedies etc so that it's in their the industry's best interest to establish those standards. Yeah. I worry that in the software industry, it is not in their financial best yeah. interest to establish standards for privacy, data monetization, et cetera, because there's so much money to be made off of not having protections in that yeah. space. It's it's difficult. There's there's almost a um, a perverse incentive here because yeah. um because the you know the technologist who's building a platform is not in a fiduciary uh, relationship with the with the end users. They're in an actual financial relationship with the people who either are investing in the company or are the ones that are going to be able to generate revenue. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. So yeah. there's some question around like how do we re- how do we rearchitect the fiduciary responsibilities here and align incentives between capital and and product design really difficult and intractable problem. So um, I, I don't, I don't really have good solutions. And when people ask me like, well, what, what should be done? Um, I actually say very confidently, I don't know. It's not my job to tell you how to do it. It is my job to teach um, technologists, software engineers, and investors how to ask the right questions of technology so that more people start asking the right questions of technology. And therefore, probabilistically, we increase the likelihood that mm. somebody will come up with an answer. So if I, you know, if I if I raise an issue, that doesn't mean I necessarily know how to do something about it, but at least I'm noticing, hey, there's an issue. Can anybody else, can the 10 people listening to me also help me think through this issue so somebody can come up with some sort of solution? 
Yeah, I I think it's going to be very difficult um, because one one it's a difficult problem. Two, the financial incentives are the opposite direction for the large scale platforms mm-hmm. that benefit from being able to monetize your data, create psychographs, target ads for you, et cetera. And three, people are kind of lazy too, right? I mean, I use plenty of free services that I know exactly what's going on, at least conceptually behind the scenes. I may not always be aware of the scale of the data trading behind the scenes, but you know, I get value out of using something like Facebook entirely for free. Well, it's not really for free. It's free to me, you know, in terms of a direct cost. That That is one of the potential paths, right? Is for people to offer services in which you can opt out, but you have to pay a subscription fee to make up for the advertising revenue they're not going to get. Um, yeah. I also, I, I am waiting to see the company arise that allows you to create a digital identity that shields your actual identity and that mm-hmm. interfaces with all of these ad supported data monetizing online services. <laughs> but but they don't know that it's you. They can't tie it yeah. to your location, your uh, any of your characteristics. I, I would love to see that anonymized digital avatar as opposed to the uh, you know the digital clone or the digital twin. I want to see the anonymized digital yeah. av- avatar that protects you in digital cyberspace. Uh, but yeah, there, there's there's actually two cloaking device. <laughs> yeah, and and I it's, it's just po- it's entirely possible. We actually have the technologies, but they're just we we they're not moving as quickly, and there's just not as many like it's it's two sides. You've got to have the 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 people who are creating it and the people who are buying it. And um, here's where I would say there's two different things I want I want to uh, pick up on here. One is how do we align those incentives? I think the best. Um, available option to us right now, if government is involved, is to look at this as a national security concern. Um, if you, yep, um, yeah. and, you know, TikTok is a really good example. Uh, TikTok, yeah, I was thinking that <laughs> TikTok is, is a vector for cultural influence and disinformation. China I literally not- don't use TikTok, yeah. but I went and grabbed an ID on TikTok that maps to my ID on all the other services, so nobody else would grab that ID. I have Smart. no intention of ever using it. Same. I just don't want someone else to use the same ID I use everywhere else. Yeah. That's smart. I did the same. Now, TikTok is, operates very differently in China. Like there are certain hours when um, it's on curfew so that um, young people are not scrolling. They're actually studying. They're doing things that are good for, for the Republic. <laughs> um, certain content isn't shown. And I'm not saying that we should, we, you know, we should have some sort of like uh, embargoes on content. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that China uses its commerce strategically in the national yeah. interest, whereas the United States does not because we have this free market and that makes a lot of sense. But when you're facing an asymmetric and decentralized threat, um, it's maybe important to think about how to centralize some, you know, some responsive power so that we can protect our autonomy as United States citizens, our ability to think freely and vote and deliberate. So that's one vector is just like, we have to start to think about culture um, coming from commerce and commerce actually being an instrument of statecraft. Um, so that's one. So what do we do? Probably national security. Number two, ha- digital identity. How might we do this differently? The reason, um, the reason I think we got ourselves into this into this pickle <laughs> is because of poorly um, architected user identity, and it comes from email addresses. That's sort of the original sin of the internet, mm-hmm. because the, the internet was built for protocols to talk to each other. And when people started to use the internet, we really needed to quickly come up with a way for people to interface with each other. So we were like, um, gee, what? Uh, we have emails. You know, that's a pretty good proxy. Let's just use emails. 
Um, and we don't realize that the email is something that's that's provisioned to us by a private company. And so already from there, a power dynamic uh, yeah. begins where, yep, where the company that created the service is giving it to you and in exchange for you saying, okay, I agree to this, the terms of service here. I don't really know what the terms mean, but cool. So now you're already in this, in this, in this dynamic where the company gets to dictate the terms of your provisioning yourself into a space. I don't have to go to a private company to provision myself onto into physical spaces and you know into meet space. I just exist, right? I don't need someone to tell me under what terms to exist in a public space. But in digital spaces, it's all intermediated by private companies, um, and there's so many of them, right? I have so many different logins, so many different identities, and it gets multiplicative and ungovernable when you start thinking about what does the metaverse look like? How many different environments are we going to be in? Am I going to have to move between different terms of service and like it, I won't be able to read it all. If, if we remain in this paradigm where you're showing me a piece of paper that's 20 pages long, for me, just the transact value that's part of modern society, I won't do any of it. And so either these agreements are interoperable and I said it once and forget it, or I am forever just like leaving a massive trail of data exhaust for you to mine and, and um, influence me in a concealed way. How might we do it differently? Decentralized identity. That would be wonderful. Mm -hmm with zero knowledge cryptography on top so that I can determine um, you know, access controls. I want you to see this content and I, don't, I only want you to see this content and under these conditions and for this time, and then I revoke access, right? I can have that kind of granular um, right. control over my identity options because they belong to me and you, the service that wants me as a customer, you get to read my terms of service. You get to read my end user license agreement. And if you don't like something, well, I sorry, I'm not going to be one of your users. So we kind of, ha we have it wrong. Instead of us having to read and agree to multi multiplicative, you know, 10, 200, 1,000, 10,000 different environments or worlds, it's all those worlds that have to adapt to what's in our end user license agreements. See, I agree with this completely. And I think that you and I should start this company, <laughs> except it turns out a friend of the Austin Forum, Jay Williams, is the CTO and founder of a company called Arcatar. And this is similar to what they're planning to do. You know, they're they're not pretending that people's digital identities aren't already out there and people aren't trading the data, but they're creating tools for people to take control of their own data and be in control of who gets to access it and how it's used. And I, I hope to see a lot more companies like that and doing things that are oriented towards you as the individual protecting your identity and determining your own, as you said, your own end user license agreement. It's really the, the 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 end company license agreement. Here's what you can do with my data and here's what you can't do with it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's I would love to see that. Yeah. Right. Um, I it's 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 the only way that it's governable is if if your if your protocol is interfacing with my predetermined terms and conditions and then you adapt the service you give to me. There's it's not workable. Even in 2010 there was a study in 2010, this is like how many orders of magnitude less data was there online in 2010? And this study showed that in order for a person to be able to make consensual and a truly inform, give informed consent on a terms of service agreement, they'd have to spend nine productive weeks doing nothing but reading terms of service agreements and comparing and contrasting them to actually make that decision, which yeah. is impossible. It would stop the economy. It's not reasonable. And yet we do this because we as an industry have not said we have we have to grow up and we have to do this in a way that respects human beings. So, you know, I have to ask this question, even though we've kind of hinted around it in many of our uh, questions and answers so far, but I'll mm -hmm. ask it more explicitly. How is AI impacting views on digital privacy? Yeah, this is a really massive new service area for privacy infringement, not to say um, uh, 
security vulnerabilities for companies, um, vulnerabilities in terms of intellectual property when companies, you know, use an open source model and then they input, let's say, company information into it. And then that becomes part of the training set. So you're exposing both your intellectual property and the PII of, of the users that trust you. Um, those are sort of the immediate term um, risks that people are starting to, to wisen up to. But to me, I think it's even more important to think about AI as this enabling technology horizontal that impacts every everything else. It's the same way that computers are horizontal. Like you don't get to like, there's no there's no industry that's just, we use computers and these other industries don't. Like it's a horizontal enabler, it affects everything else. And so everybody had to understand how to use computers safely, right? And accelerated everything. Um, AI now accelerates compute in everything. So it accelerates compute in the accuracy of the ad tech landscape that's targeting you. It accelerates compute analytics, right? Insight into what you're thinking and feeling when it comes to biometrics. And this, I think this is probably the area where we can focus on the most. Yes, what's done in the past is already public information. My data is out there, right? right. But there's this, new, um, there's this new surface area that's emerging, which is neurotechnology, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not necessarily implants. It's commercially available, non-surgical, you know, just headgear, right? It's the it's that line I, I I drew between the computer, the mainframe, and the desktop, the laptop. Eventually, it's it's in the head, but we have no um, we have no defined zone of cognitive privacy anywhere in statutory law, right? Um, and what's possible with uh, with non invasive VCIs is well. Based on the patterns in your brain waves, I can figure out what the pattern, what the password is that um, that you're thinking. Mm -hmm. I can understand yeah. how exactly. I can understand where you want to move your hand. Right? These advances are amazing. They're allowing people that um, are paralyzed in some in some way to to re regain capabilities. They're allowing people that can't speak or hear to you know to do those things. But with new powers, like with new exciting advancements comes new responsibilities. We need to understand the full spectrum of what that power allows, not just the, the positive use cases, but the anti-patterns and the negative use cases. And it's almost the job of the technologist to be a hopeless optimist. That's the point. You get into technology, you get into entrepreneurship because you're like, I see a better world. That's your training is to be, is to be like an optimist, right? But you also have to be if you, you know, as you rise in your career and you start to take on responsibilities, you also have to wisen up to the fact that you're building, like, what does a product designer or a product manager do? You are building human experiments at scale, scaled human experiments that yield very granular data about humans. And it's probably time to start thinking about other interdependent domains that are impacted by tech, like law, like behavioral economics like cognition, and just to think about what are the respons what other responsibilities does this new power confer? Cybersecurity is very good at this. Cybersecurity is like, cool, you're an optimist. Let me see all the different ways this goes wrong. That's the job of the cybersecurity professional. But that's the right. only place in tech where your job is to be a realist. Everywhere else, we're optimists. And that's great. But yeah, it's, <laughs> it's definitely, I, I love your statement about technologists uh, being optimists and always trying to create more and more capability, more and more, you know, uh, power in these tools to do bigger and better things. Mm -hmm. Um, and we need two things, right? We need one, we need some, some method of keeping all of these optimists aware of the potential negative ramifications mm -hmm. because we want them to stay optimists, but if they completely lose sight of the potential negative ramifications, they won't design for it. So you need 
the optimists to have an awareness. And then you need yeah. a subset of these technologists that are working on the negative impacts that say, yeah. my contribution to the world isn't yeah. going to be this new capability. It's going to be this protection from misuse of this new capability. And that is a positive thing as well. But but you're right. It's it's definitely the case that most technologists are in it to build an entirely new capability instead yes. of to build guardrails and or to build wonderful. countermeasures. Yeah. It's genuinely wonderful. But also, yeah. if you are if you are in a career that that promises any longevity, it, it's also your job to protect your company, right, from reputational yes. harm, from data breach, protect your users. It's all going to affect your bottom line and your ability to um, to grow with the company, right? So I think that in this new age of AI enabled absolutely everything. If you are a, a product designer or a product manager, you have to incorporate threat modeling into your workflow. Like it's just a part of your job. Agreed. You have to yeah. know how to do threat modeling and you have to understand what is an externality and how, if possible at all, to internalize that externality into the product instead of it, you know, sort of amassing harms over time and eventually sort of breaking the Republic. Right. Well, Anastasia, <laughs> this has all been great. I'm going to close the interview with the big question of you as a thought leader. I'd, I'd like you to share your vision for what digital privacy protections, if any, you would like to see and how we can get there. And we've, we've talked about them some in this interview, mm -hmm. but give me your vision for five and 10 years out. How would you like to see digital privacy protected? I think that there is no governable, reasonable way to manage digital privacy for users if that management is externalized outside the locus of the user himself. Because as I said in the beginning of the interview, privacy is very individual, impossible to define for everybody, and highly contextual. So it is an impossibility that any, any government governance framework, whether that's at the government level or at the platform company level, can possibly um, anticipate every every possible context that a user will face and how they're going to respond to that context. That's like tantamount to trying to envision the future, right? Mm. So you have to give the, um, the, the power of responsiveness and context back to the user, right? So platforms can't do this. There's just too many options. You're trying to predict the future. The only person that can respond um, with agility to the changing context is the user, which means that there's no such thing as a private future without some sort of self-sovereign or decentralized identity where I can also cryptographically protect everything that emanates from my user ID or my dig my uh, decentralized identifier, however we call yeah. it. That's so cool. make cryptography great again. <laughs> well, thank you for that answer and for that vision. Um, I'll ask one more question. How can our listeners learn more about this topic? Well, um, I do write a good bit about this on my uh, mirror account. So that's yes, this was this was the shameless plug time. So I wanted to make right <laughs> um, I and by the way, I'm not by any means the only um, the only thought leader in this space. But if you happen to like how I think about these issues, it's Anna.mirror.xyz, um, Anna with one N. And you can also search for the privacy podcast um, on Spotify, on uh, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Privacy Podcast is something that I host with my co-host, Chad Fowler, where we um, lead similar discussions with uh, with builders and thought leaders in the privacy, cryptography, yeah. cryptocurrency, and AI space. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted you to mention. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I also want to put in another plug for Anastasia, which is that the Austin Forum 
big presentation and networking event for November 2023 is going to be a mock debate on digital privacy, trust, responsibility, and ethics. And Anastasia, I'm really glad that you're going to be our participant in that event. I'm looking forward to seeing you take the debate stage and compete against our other debaters in that event. You're not looking forward to it any more than I am. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us, Anastasia. And I hope to see you again real soon. And I will definitely see you in November for that event. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Austin Forum Upload. You can listen to additional episodes and check out a schedule of our monthly in-person events at austinforum.org. The Upload is a production of the Austin Forum on Technology and Society, a nonprofit organization here in Austin, Texas.